The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 22, reading through chapter 2 verse 10, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Now, how exciting it is to jump into chapter 2, although we still have one verse remaining in chapter 1. And what we've seen is a foundation laid over the first 21 verses. And we've recognized that the world of Pharaoh really parallels our world today. Not only in the oppression being um, put on others, but in the mindsets that um, were, were, were being um, carried out day to day. But we also recognize that God uses unexpected, unlikely heroes. Who is it that Pharaoh views as viable threats, threats to his plans? Well, it's boys, and specifically baby boys, the future of um, these Hebrews. But who is it that God chooses to use very intentionally, um, and we see this noted over and over and over? Well, it's people like Shifra and Pua, and Jochebed, and Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter, women. He uses those that maybe were being counted out, those the world didn't see as significant. And how encouraging that is for us, that in our mundane, there is a grand significance that God intends to use for his glory. But now as we continue on in this uh, beautiful book, we have this final verse of chapter two, uh, chapter one, and then the first ten verses of chapter two. I'd like us to kind of glance at five components, and these five components will help guide us through the passage. But as we walk, we're going to see many very practical applications. Uh, we want to look at a pharaonic decree, which is obviously Pharaoh wanting to kill the boys. Then we'll see parental direction, some some practical parenting lessons we can learn from. Uh, Moses's parents, who are not yet named, by the way, although I did refer to Jochebed a bit earlier. The third thing we'll see is a pivotal decision, and that will be to put the baby in the basket in the river. Then we'll see providential details, and those will emerge in many different ways. And finally, we'll notice a prophetic description. And so these five things will just walk us through. 
it's interesting how history oftentimes turns on the access or on um, the, these, these pinpoints of um, small, small decisions, small occurrences. Um, there, there was one that happened back in the late 1800s. Uh, perhaps some of you know if you studied history, Kaiser Wilhelm, Wilhelm II, who was the King of Prussia, Germany's last emperor. And many would be very quick to say that um, his aggressive policies really led the world into World War I, um, which was seemingly an entirely avoidable war. But in 1889, when he was reigning, he had this fascination for the Wild West show. And probably uh, many listening would recognize the name Annie Oakley, who was famous for uh, how she handled her 45, her gun. And in this show, she would do many different acts, but one thing she liked to do was um, she would blow the ashes off a cigar that someone either had in their mouth or in their hand. Um, now, typically, she would ask almost as a joking line, who will volunteer to put the cigar in their mouth as she would pace off and then take her shot? Well, typically, of course, no one would volunteer, but they had her husband ready to take that role. Sure hope they had a good relationship at home because who knows what would happen with that shot. But the point being is that he would take that place with a cigar in his mouth or in his hand and she would blow the ashes off. Well, when the show came to Germany, who showed up but the big fan, Kaiser Wilhelm II. And when she threw out that line of who will put the cigar in their mouth, well, Kaiser Wilhelm actually volunteered. Now, th th this was not um, a popular thing among his security guards and uh, among the police of the state. But uh, what can they say when the guy wants to be involved in the show? And so he puts the cigar, um, I think it was in his mouth, and she paces off very nervous. Later on, she recounts in her journal how nervous she was because she's like, I could kill a leader of a country right now. And she made the shot and, you know, everything went fine. But later on, after the war um, had begun, Annie actually wrote back to Wilhelm and she said, can I take a second shot? <laughs> and what was her point? Her point was, I absolutely detest what you're doing um, and uh, right or wrong, um, she's like, I wish I had taken you out. Well, that's interesting, right? Because you think, wow, so much of the world um, occurrences, we would say, were, were affected by a good shot. But what would have been different had that gun just not quite been aimed um, at those ashes. Uh, you can always say the what ifs of history. Well, the point is that God uses moments, moments. And we're going to see moments. We're going to see it in, in today's uh, podcast. We'll see it next time. Um, God is a God of moments, of days. And this is significant in his plans and in his ways. So beginning in verse 22, we see this Pharaonic decree. And it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So what's man seeking here? What's Pharaoh seeking? The extermination of God's people. But what is God doing? Not what's God seeking, but what is God doing? God is uh, doing the emancipation of his people. So here, man is seeking to exterminate. God is, is going to emancipate. He's going to free. He's going to liberate his people. And, and so recognize there are two different agendas happening. And of course, we obviously know which is um, greater. 
Now, uh, this pharaonic decree is going to affect the way others respond. And, and notice what happens next. There's parental direction. Uh, we see in verses 1 and 2 that there's a man from the house of Levi. He went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, later on, as we actually get to know who these two individuals are in chapter 6, there's some very fascinating details about uh, Moses' parents. But for right now, since the Word of God is not yet telling us those details, we're going to keep those details um, just tabled for a bit. Or I shouldn't even say tabled. We're going to... We're gonna, we're gonna, put them aside, and we'll, we'll bring them back to the table a bit later. But notice this. Um, the verse begins, verse 1, in Hebrew. In English, my version says now. But it's really, again, this word and. Um, and, and so when it says and, a man from the house of Levi took as his wife a Levite woman, um, this is not saying he took her at the moment the decree was uh, made. They already were married. This is... Um, this is just the Hebrew. This is just the Hebrew way of continuing the story. As in, this is the setup. This is the situation. And in this situation, a baby boy is born. I hope that wasn't too confusing. But just know that this is a continuation. Now, Hebrews eleven and Acts chapter seven actually give us more details on what is happening in relation to Moses's parents and the birth of Moses. Hebrews eleven twenty three tells us. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. See, Moses' parents weren't afraid. Um, and we, we know straight out that the antonym of fear is faith. We already saw that Shifra and Pua were not afraid of Pharaoh because they feared God. We saw earlier that um, the Egyptians were fearful of the the hebrews why because they they feared losing their way of life and so we're told in proverbs 29 25 that the fear of man brings what a snare it's a trap it's that which will bring us to fall but he who trusts in the lord will be exalted so we see that moses's parents were people of faith in fact um, the Greek word used in Hebrews eleven twenty three, when it says um, that they were not afraid of the king's edict, the word for not signifies absolutely not. So think of it like that. His parents were absolutely not afraid, absolutely not afraid of what Pharaoh was threatening. I have to ask myself the question, and I would hope you ask yourself too, but do we fear earthly, ungodly authorities more than the Lord God? Are we more concerned for our own safety than that of the kingdom of God um, and obedience to what God's called us to? I can confidently say that the safest place to be is not in the will of God. And you say, wait, 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 safest? I said safest place. It's the best place to be. It is a place of protection, but safe? God never calls us to safety. Uh, in fact, he calls us quite a bit to the opposite. He says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You take up your cross, you're not headed on vacation. You take up your cross, you're on your way to die. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution through the mouth of Paul. Uh, of course, Jesus talks about how blessed are those who are persecuted. Uh, he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. A servant's not greater than his master. And, and so over and over, he promises rejection. He promises the cross. Uh, but even in the danger, we can be confident of God's timing and his protection until our platform is to be one of suffering, um, 
imprisonment, death, whatever that might be. And so understand here that when they're walking in obedience, it didn't promise them an easy journey. And certainly throughout the book of Exodus, we see that it wasn't always an easy journey. But you see, true faith, the persevering type of faith, is one that's going to fear God, not the threats, ideas, and impositions of this world. I think often about how we call courts, Supreme Courts. Most country has a Supreme Court, and that Supreme Court is where the final decision's made. And once you've appealed to the Supreme Court, there's nowhere else to appeal to. But remember, the Supreme Court is not in the capital city of your country um, or any other city of your country. The Supreme Court is in heaven, and there are not multiple judges. There's only one, and he does have the last word. Um, Jesus Christ made it very clear in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear man who can destroy your body, but fear God who destroys body and soul in hell. Um, and, and so truly, uh, Moses' parents had their eyes on the right one. Now, I, I think there's a few parenting lessons we can pull out of this. I have two little girls, and, and I'm fairly new in the parenting journey, just about three years in. But uh, nonetheless, these are examples from the Word of God. So um, this is not from my experience that I'm teaching you this. This is what the Lord is teaching me. But there's a few things we see. One, we see uh, the example, the example of Moses' parents. You see, in the light of their God-fearing faith, we're not surprised that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Because what do we see in Moses? Well, actually, in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven, it talks about the same kind of faith that doesn't fear in Moses. You see, Moses saw in his parents that which later he would emulate. So your example, your example is potent to your children. Also, your entrustment. We're going to see in a little while how they entrust Moses into the care of God. Sometimes I think we can try to hold on to our children in such a way where where we uh, just believe that, wow, um, uh, I have to protect them. I have to care for them. I have to be the one that, that makes sure that they're always okay. Well, yes, we're called as parents to protect our children, to care for them. But at the end of the day, uh, it's the Lord God who holds them in his hand. He's their ultimate protector, and we want to always point to him. And, and, and I just wonder, how often do we actually keep our kids from obedience, from obedience, because we're trying to protect them? Are we protecting our children so much that we're protecting them from obedience to God's call and God's word? I'll give you an example of that. As, as I travel, and as I teach places, I, I see many young people who are willing to lay down their lives for Christ, to go to unreached areas, to share the gospel where there is danger, and oftentimes the first person standing in their path are their parents and their grandparents. And why? Because they want to protect rather than entrust their kids into God's care. Again, I'm not saying that there isn't an element of wisdom, but wisdom will always line up with the Word of God, and God's Word does not point us to an easy life. It points us to a faithful life. And so uh, their example their entrustment. And then also I want you to notice their eye, and we're going to talk about their eye a little bit here in verse 2. But what was their eye? They saw their child in the light of who God created him to be. How do we see that? Well, well again, look at verse 2. In verse 2, it tells us that the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. That's an interesting word. When she saw he was a fine child, she saw. You see, she had vision. She had vision of uh, who God had created her child to be. You might just say, oh man, well, she's just saying her, her kid's good looking. But really the phrase is so much more than just that. Um, 
in the, in the ESV it says she saw he was a fine child, but it's a Hebrew idiom being used here. So we have the word ra'a, and then we'll have the noun or the pronoun, which in this case is, is he. But ra'a, and then it's uh, it's combined with kitov. And tov is the same word good, which is used back in Genesis 1 when God saw his creation, he declared it's good. But when you put those together, it, it means to care about or to be fond of or even um, to want. And this is interesting because you think of she saw her son and she realized that he was a wanted one. He was one to be fond of. You could almost say he was um, beloved. He was well-pleasing. Well, I'm using those words intentionally, right? Because those are the words used of the Lord Jesus Christ um, at his baptism, right? When the voice from heaven speaks down and says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well-pleased. And then later on, God says from heaven, hear him. It's almost as though there is this marker being put down in Exodus 2 where it's saying, this kid is going to be used for something which is going to impact the world itself. And I believe that Moses' parents saw that. They had an eye to see that. I just wonder, do we have an eye to see the image of God in our children? Do we have an eye to see the value God has stamped on our children? Is that what we're desiring to do as parents? Do we, do we let our example, our entrustment, our eye, all be things that point them to the eternal reality for which our kids were created? And so we definitely see some practical parenting lessons in the parental direction of Moses' parents. But uh, one other thing that's just worth noting as we study the scriptures, there's a phrase used at the beginning of verse 2. It says, the woman conceived and bore a son. Now, you'll, you'll know that most of the, and I say most of, and there's a reason for that, but most of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were penned by Moses. And it's interesting that that phrase is used 16 times where a woman conceives and bears a son. And uh, this is the final of those 16 times. And each time, it, it, it's noting that, yeah, it's a normal way in Hebrew of saying, hey, somebody got pregnant and is going to have a baby. But even more than that, saying it like this, it, it's, it's denoting a, a, a birth that's going to change a lot of things. And so this is the last time that we have one of those births in the Pentateuch. And, and so we have, uh, from this parental direction, we move on to a pivotal decision being made. And what's that pivotal decision? Well, head to verse 3. Verse 3 says, When she, that's Jochebed, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Um, so what's she doing? Well, she's literally obeying the decree of Pharaoh. Now, not in the way that Pharaoh anticipated, but what did Pharaoh say back in verse 22? You shall cast into the Nile, what? All the male babies, every son that is born. So is she casting? Well, we could kind of say she's not casting because actually when you get down to um, verse 4, it says, or end of verse 3 actually, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And so it, you can actually notice the language, even in English, it comes across very, very clearly the tenderness of Jochebed. It, it says she placed the child in the basket. She placed the basket among the reeds. 
this is a gentle thing. So she's not casting her baby into the Nile. So you could say, yeah, she's not obeying the command. All right, you're right. But but she is putting her baby into the river. Um, and, and so just noting um, that obedience in a very uh, rebellious way, of course, a God-blessed way. Um, but let's go a little bit further. Why? Why did she put him in a basket? What's the significance of this basket? Um, I'm not going to get into this because, again, it's not the direction that we want to head in this particular podcast. But if it is a direction you want to look at further, um, please, there's some great resources out there. And feel free to contact us at www.intoyourbible.org and be happy to send you resources to kind of dive more into this. But some want to suggest that this Moses story is just stolen from a Akkadian um, fable that came a thousand years before, although that wasn't actually like written down until after um, these words were written down. But the point being is they'll say there are many other stories that have similarities here and there. Um, all right, first of all, there's, there's a lot of things we could discuss with this, and I'm not going to get into it right now. But I will say there's grand differences between the two, and even if that story was before, um, maybe maybe somehow Jacobet had heard that story and got inspired by a detail of it and said, hey, probably not, but I'm just saying, sure, could have. But I'm going to go to the Spirit of God, and here's what I know about it. What I know about what Jochebed did is she was painting a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably unknowingly um, in the sense of this is what came to her mind, but what a picture it is. You see, the word being used here for basket, this word being used for what she put him in, is the exact same word that is used for one other story in Scripture, and that is the ark back in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. In fact, these are the only two stories where this word ark is used. So we have two arks in Scripture. We have Noah's ark and we have Jochebed's ark, or if you want to say Moses' ark. I don't. I, I probably should ruin these kinds of things on a podcast because then everybody hears and I can't. I can't do it anymore. At least win it anymore. But one of my favorite um, riddles to give um, people biblical riddles is I say, so how many people were saved in the ark? And eight is the normal answer because they're referring back to Noah's ark and there were eight individuals in the ark. But of course the answer is nine. Nine were saved in the ark. Moses and those in Noah's day. Um, and this word ark, again, it's used 28 times, um, but only in these two stories. And what an image of Christ we have here. Again, just think of it. What's happening? They can't hide this baby after three months. And it's interesting that this three months is mentioned. It's mentioned three times in Scripture that it was three months. It's mentioned in Acts 7. It's mentioned in Hebrews 11. It's mentioned here in Exodus 2. Three months. All three times it mentions again that he is this, uh, that he's this fine child. So again, fine child being put in this ark um, after three months. And so... Where specifically is he being put? Well, he's being put in a river of death. Think of what's surrounding him, a watery grave. I don't even know. There may have been floating babies. It's an awful scene. The blood in the water, the, 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 the sorrow of, of any mother or father that had to walk down to the River Nile and, and just remember what has happened. That's going to come up again, by the way. So uh, what I'm saying here is actually painting a picture for later on, but I want you to understand 
here is this ark of salvation in the middle of death. That's, that's obviously the picture back in Noah's day, but it's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our ark of salvation in a world that is condemned in a world of judgment, in a world of sin, we have an ark, we have a place of safety, we have a place of salvation, and there's only one door. And that one door is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And also we can understand and know that even in what Jacobin does here, it's actually a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later because later on there's going to be another passing through the water. And again, it's going to use that same word in Hebrew. Here, she places him among the reeds. Well, when they cross the sea over in Exodus chapter 14, it's called the Sea of Reeds. The exact same word used. So I want you to notice the parallel that that we're, we're being introduced to a bigger picture, which is going to reappear later on. But again, um, just how beautiful it is to see Jesus Christ in this watery graveyard so clearly pictured. Uh, I like the way Philip Ryken put it. At one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. <laughs> and, and that is so often the way God works, the details. But it doesn't just stop there. Notice verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, we are making an assumption that it's Miriam, um, and I think it's a very fair assumption. It's probably a good assumption. I'm using the word Miriam. I just want to acknowledge that maybe there was another sister, and it doesn't say Miriam here, but we certainly see Miriam as the major character as Moses' sister throughout the rest of um, not just Exodus, but throughout the next few books of Scripture. But let's look at the faith. The faith, really, of the whole family, because this is, these are characteristics of faith that apply to all of us. You see, first, faith is going to recognize. Faith is going to recognize value. In this case, they saw he was a beautiful child. They saw that God had put um, just his mark on him, if I can say it like that, in the sense that I'm, I'm using this kid for something unique. Faith responds. It doesn't just recognize. It responds. They hid him. Faith will risk. They, they placed him in a basket after those three months. And they put him in a river, not knowing what the outcome would be. And then faith remains. And that's what we see in verse 4. Miriam follows the basket. It's active faith. It's not just, okay, God, do whatever. But it's faith that follows up. See, it's not a lack of faith to follow up. In fact, many times, that's faith in action. Yes, they had faith that God was in control. But they also said, like Isaiah, here am I, send me, use me. And so perhaps God is asking you to do something and you're being slightly fatalistic about it and saying, okay, God, um, have your way. But you're not putting yourself in the way that he might choose you on the way. And so again here, we see that faith remains. So we've noticed a pharaonic decree, a parental direction, a pivotal decision, but Notice the providential details, the providential details of this account. Um, the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. Now, humanly speaking, at this point, Pharaoh's daughter, upon finding this baby, this Hebrew baby, was to throw it back in the Nile without the basket, was to get rid of this child. 
But remember Proverbs 21.1, where it, it tells us that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so instead, what does God do? Well, what God does is he actually, first, the baby's crying. I don't know. That may have been the most blessed cry ever. Why? Perhaps that is what garnered the attention and compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. But it says that, um, that when she saw the child, behold, the baby was crying, she took pity on him in verse 6. And then she makes the comment, this is one of the Hebrews' babies. This is one of the Hebrews' babies. Um, how did she know? How did she know this was a Hebrew baby? Well, it's a fair question. Maybe there were general physical differences between um, Hebrews and Egyptians. Maybe it was a type of clothes that, that, that Moses had on. Of course, he's not named Moses at this point. Um, maybe it was the fact that the discovery happened in an area where there were Hebrews. and Or maybe it was because of the decree and she figured, okay, this is one of those babies that's trying to somehow survive this um, decree to, to kill all the boys. Maybe, though, maybe the baby was circumcised and he had the mark of the covenant on him. Now, you might immediately go to chapter 4 and say, but wait, he wasn't circumcised. Chapter 4 is a discussion in itself, and I might be on your side, all right? Not that my side's the right side on. Is it talking about Moses or Moses' son? We'll get to that. That's chapter 4. That's not chapter 2. But maybe, maybe he was circumcised, and uh, maybe that gives us a hint to chapter 4 and who's being spoken of there. Regardless, she had compassion. The word compassion is hamel. And hamel means to be gentle, to, to have compassion, or to spare. To spare. That's actually a primary definition, to spare. And so, read it again with that. She took pity on him. She, she wanted to spare him. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. It's interesting because the Septuagint translates this verse with that word spare. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Romans 8.32 in the Greek New Testament, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Moses was spared in that ark, but praise God for the cross where our Savior wasn't spared, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we might always receive the compassion, the sparing of God. Um, in, in verses 7 and 8, though, going on, we see that uh, his sister, again, perhaps Miriam, says to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to him, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. I love the courage of Miriam. I, I think it's, it's easy to overlook this courage. But again, I don't know how often Hebrew girls talk to Egyptian girls. I'm not sure what those relationships look like. But I'm guessing since it's Pharaoh's daughter that there is uh, probably a bit of uh, an anomaly here happening. Again, I'm not sure, um, but I would say either way that Miriam was very courageous and perhaps was risking her own welfare to go and ask this question, especially for the saving of a Hebrew child. Uh, so, so what does she propose? Well, she proposes, you know, can I get a Hebrew woman to nurse her for you? I love this because Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this child away nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The average age of weaning would be between two and three years old. Maybe she went a little longer just because she wanted to keep her son around. But regardless, these formative years, I have again a, a nearly three-year-old 
and how formative it has been. Um, these, I mean, she so many of the grounding principles of life happen in this early developmental stage, even spiritually speaking. And I just think, wow, uh, what did he learn in those three years that we're going to pick up on next time and see how they impacted his life? But regardless, we know that he had a relationship with his family because later in chapter 4, when he's asking God to go call Aaron, he knows Aaron. He knows even Aaron's capabilities. So clearly there was an ongoing relationship even after the point when he returned to Pharaoh's house. Um, let me just make a quick note before we finish things here. And, uh, and that's in this fifth and final point that we want to move on, we want to touch on. That's the prophetic description and we see that in Moses' name, Moses' name. So notice she names him a little later on. This was a typical practice in the day to not name at birth. But you name off of something characteristic of their life. And so she's going to give him this name Moshe, Moses, which means to draw forth or to pull out. Um, it actually uh, has connotations in both Hebrew and also in the Egyptian tongue of the day. But what we see here is that he's given a name which really is a, a beautiful picture of what God had called him to do, to draw out a people. Is that not the same thing the Lord Jesus Christ is doing? He's drawing out a people for his name amidst a world of condemned sinners. Uh, how beautiful we see the Lord Jesus in the picture of Moses. See, God kept Moses alive um, ultimately that all of us might taste the, the blessing, the beauty of what's going on here. God's at work behind the scenes. He's the undercover boss, if I can say. He's the one, uh, again, let, let, let me say this carefully, he's in control, not through manipulation, but choosing to work through willing vessels who will fear him rather than their circumstances. I'll say that again, God's not manipulating, but what God is doing is he's choosing to work through willing vessels who will fear him rather than their circumstances. So I want to ask you, are you one of those are you someone that God can work through, that you're a willing vessel? Later on, we're going to see a hardened heart by someone else. But here, God is seeking those through whom he can show his glory and he can ultimately show his love. And I pray that we would be those examples, those characters in this life. Uh, R. Mattoon, um, a commentator, he made some interesting observations. He said, Moses was the child of a slave, but yet the son of a queen he was born into a simple home, but he lived in a palace. He inherited poverty, but he had unlimited wealth. He was the leader of armies, yet a keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors, but the meekest of men. Educated in the court of the king, but dwelt in the desert. Had the wisdom of Egypt, but the faith of a child. Tempted with the pleasures of sin, and he endured the hardships of virtue. Backward in speech, yet talked with God. Fugitive from Pharaoh, yet ambassador of heaven. Giver of the law, but the forerunner of grace. Hallelujah, this is beautiful, and we're only getting started in the journey of the Exodus and Moses. And yet throughout history, this is what we can see. We can see that the plans of God's enemies backfire miserably. The greatest time was on Calvary, when the enemy sought to destroy, kill the very Son of God, not knowing that not only was prophecy being accomplished, but his death would lead to his resurrection that we all might have our sins forgiven and live forever. One final example as uh, we close out, I think of um, uh, 
a, a famous, well, it's, it, it's sort of famous, famous if you work in the broadcasting field, specifically um, the gospel center broadcasting field, but there's a, a well-known radio transmitter in Monte Carlo, Monaco, and it was actually established by Adolf Hitler, and it was intended to disseminate uh, Nazi propaganda into North Africa and other parts of Europe, but I'll just say this, that today that powerful, powerful transmitter is, is in the hands of Transworld Radio, and, and actually we work closely alongside and, and have broadcasts which are going into places where, let's say, those who want to preach Christ are not invited, but how wonderful it is that here are the plans of man to use this device to, uh, to bring about death. And God says, actually, I'm letting you establish that so I can bring about life. Let me just tell you in your life today, God's plans are way bigger, way bigger than what you see. And though man might be seeking to thwart the efforts uh, of, of God, if I can say it like that, they, they will not prevail because he's faithful who called you and he will do it. I pray that we will have the same type of faith that we see in this chapter, faith that recognizes, faith that responds, faith that risks, and then faith that remains. Our time is out. Please check out www.intoyourbible.org for more or go to our YouTube page. But uh, until next time, this has been Into Your Bible. And our prayer is that you would be one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.